0: Today, I want to start with a riddle. Here goes. I am not one, but many, yet in a family, I stand alone. I shift and change to please, but my efforts are often like shadows in the sun. Perfect I strive to be, yet perfection remains a distant star. In the background, I fade, a whisper in the wind, unseen but ever-present. Laughter I bring, a jester in the court of daily life, but my smile hides a quest for something more. Born in a home where maturity was scarce and self-centeredness reigned, what role have I been cast unknowingly from the start? Have you ever found yourself constantly adjusting your actions and your words to keep somebody else happy, especially somebody who seems to never quite acknowledge your efforts? Or did you also feel the need to continually be perfect? Or did you feel like you had to just blend into the background in order to not make things in the family worse? Or were you the funny guy, the comic relief, But now you're learning that it is hard for you to take almost anything seriously, especially the things that you want in your relationship or in your life. Well, if that sounds familiar, then you might be playing a role that you never auditioned for growing up in an emotionally immature or narcissistic environment. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 106 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and today we are going to uncover a lot of the dynamics of uh, the hidden dynamics of narcissistic families, the narcissistic family system. And we are going to talk about some roles that I've never talked about before. As a matter of fact, one that I think will make me crawl up into the corner and assume the fetal position and just it just it hits a little bit too deep. And before we get to those various family roles, I want to talk a little bit about the perfect family or does every family have some dysfunction? And I had several articles up over the last few days as I put some of my thoughts together. So I know I'm pulling from some concepts from uh, Psychology Today, a little bit from Psych Central, and just a a good old Dr. Google search. But there's just something about family dynamics that I think is so fascinating, but it's incredibly complex. And there's some research by a a person named Harkonnen back in 2017. and, And it really hit home because they said every family with its quirks, its idiosyncrasies, it shapes how we think, how we feel, and how we interact with the world. And it, it really is this unique recipe that takes the nature of our parents' relationship, the the various personalities in our own family. That It, it goes into almost the speech I'd like to give about why we are the only version of us with our, our birth order, our DNA, our abandonment, our rejection, our nature, our nurture, because all of those things also go into our family, our family dynamic, our family system. So you do, you've got these personalities all within our family, life events. It could be uh, death of a loved one, divorce, job loss. Then we've got our cultural and our ethnic influences and our religious beliefs. We've got our beliefs about gender roles and about what success looks like and is money important. And we have so many different things that go in to what makes our family, our family. Then it is, it is no shock or surprise that growing up in an open and supportive home is far more like an exception than the norm. But then here's where we have a little bit of a reality check. The notion of a perfect family or a perfect parent, it just is a myth. It is, and that's just, we're bringing awareness to that. Parents are human, they're not flawless, they have their own battles and they have their own concerns, and most kids can handle a parent's occasional outburst, but what really counts is the love and the understanding and the consistency that balance all of that out. There's a researcher named Shaw that in 2014 talked about dysfunctional families, where parents aim to create a safe, loving, respectful environment. And in those homes, conflict is low, support is high, and then communication just flows. And that kind of upbringing then would not only help kids through their own growing pains, but also leaves a positive imprint as then they step out into adulthood and they find themselves in more healthy relationships. And so what does it even mean to grow up in a dysfunctional family? The family is supposed to be the safest place, for a kid to grow up. And that way it could become this anchor, this place to return to this securely attached home base. But if that is not the case, then it becomes a source of emotional wounds. And that will stay with the kid. I want to say with them for life. I mean, it impacts who they are. Now they can use that information to then help them work through that, go to therapy and try to figure out, oh, this is the reason why I show up the way I do or why I play small or why Uh, I feel like I have to command all the attention in the room or whatever that looks like. But in those those dysfunctional families, we're going to talk more about those and the roles that people play in them today. In those families, aggression is typically a common language. And so then we're talking about behaviors like belittling or trying to dominate or lying the parents or, or controlling. And then affection seems almost like a foreign concept. And it's either rarely shown or it's completely absent. And so kids grow up without these reassuring hugs or kind words, and then the concept of neglect is there, and kids feeling like they're just floating in the background, unnoticed and uneasy. And then you got things like addiction, where parents are lost in their own compulsions. It could be work or drugs or alcohol, sex or gambling. And unfortunately, in a lot of those cases, violence can become the norm with threats or actual physical or sexual abuse. And then the emotional violence is even more concerning, or it's as concerning but we don't talk about that enough. There's not a good way to put words around that. Because for kids, their family is their whole world. I mean, when they're little, parents are like superheroes. I mean, they're, they're protectors and they're providers. And without the parent, then the world feels absolutely scary and it's unsafe. But here's the tragic part. Kids in these environments often find themselves adapting and, and enabling the very chaos and instability that is what's harming them. And kids just don't have the tools to make sense of all this. They can't always tell what's healthy and what's not. They don't know. And especially if their parents don't know or aren't modeling that either. So then a kid might twist their experiences to then fit into what they think is normal. So they end up downplaying things like the severity of their whole situation with excuses like, I mean, it didn't really hit me. It was just a spanking. Or, you know, my parents aren't really just, they aren't violent. That's just kind of how they communicate or how they get things done. And then sometimes they'll even take blame for the abuse thinking they deserved it because they weren't of being a good kid or, well, I didn't, didn't clean my room or I did talk back to him. And that starts this, this cycle of basically misinterpretation and that starts to warp the kids self view and it leads them to develop negative beliefs about themselves. And so on that same note, if we then go deeper into how our childhood shapes our beliefs, it's often in ways that we don't even know. That's, why I love talking about that. We don't know what we don't know. And so the fact that you're listening to podcasts like mine or you're trying to go on this journey of self discovery is you are trying to figure things out because as kids, we soak up everything around us like sponges We're these little emotional sponges. And there's a researcher named Galman who said that the things our parents do and say, plant the seeds in our minds. And then those seeds grow into beliefs that we carry unchallenged into adulthood. So then if you think about a lot of different phrases that you hear, children should always respect their parents or it's my way or no way, or those things aren't just words. They're laying the foundation, the cement of a belief system that then can unfortunately lead to some kind of toxic behavior later in life. And then parents often wrap these beliefs up as advice, loaded with a lot of shoulds and oughts, and you're supposed to. And sure, we can recognize and challenge spoken beliefs, like if you grow up hearing that divorce is always bad, then you might have a tendency to stay in a loveless marriage, but at least you can wrestle with that idea. You can challenge it because it was spoken. Those unspoken beliefs, those are tricky. They are below the surface of our, our awareness. And uh, those beliefs then end up being like the script of a play you don't even know you're acting in. And then those, they come from how your parents interacted with each other or how they interacted with you, the things you watched them do when they interacted with even other people in the world. And then you might end up believing things like, okay, well, women are less than men or children owe everything to their parents, regardless of how they're treated. And those beliefs, they are, unfortunately, they're incredibly powerful and they often go unquestioned because they're just what we think. And and then there's unspoken rules and these in, invisible strings that control our lives. Rules like don't outshine your dad or don't be happier than your mom. It's almost like the, there's now a family script that we're unconsciously following that demands o- obedience and loyalty. And there is often a big old gap between what we as children truly want and what our parents expected from us. And more often than not, this internal pressure, and it's even unseen. Again, it's in the subconscious. We're just acting on this, but it just doesn't feel right. And that internal pressure to conform then so often overshadows our own needs and desires to become and to learn and to figure things out. And then when we don't feel like we're living our true lives, we turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms and that can lead us to our own self-destruction and our own unfulfillment. There was a large group of researchers with the several names that are difficult to pronounce, but they talked about kids growing up in these type of environments that they have a a whole list of challenges. They're often caught in the middle of parental conflicts. They're forced to pick sides. They live in a world of reality shifting where words and actions consistently contradict each other. And they deal with parents who are either too involved or too distant. And then they're just like this yo-yo effect. So they're either completely overlooked or they're under a microscope. And that can come at any moment. And then they might be asked to do more than they can do, be parentified, their kids, or left without any guidance or structure. And then their own feelings are so often criticized or just completely ignored. Again, this is all at the whim of the parent. And that's why we need to do our own work. So then a kid can experience rejection or a, you know they can also then go quickly to get preferential treatment, depending on how the parent feels. And some of them even encourage to use alcohol or drugs or they endure physical beatings. And so that kind of upbringing, it will really mess with a child's ability to trust. So then, and, and I'm talking trust in the world and others or particularly in themselves. So then they're left without a clear idea of what is normal or what is healthy. And then as adults, then kids find themselves unable to live without chaos. They get bored in calm situations. They've had to grow up too fast. They, they lose connection with their own needs and they really can struggle to ask for help. They don't want to be a, a, a burden to anybody. And those who, are constantly ridicu- uh, those who are constantly ridiculed might grow up judging themselves really harshly, lying or just craving approval. Or the lying will come from, I can't get in trouble because then I won't get approval. So then they might battle these fears of abandonment or feelings of unworthiness and then a deep sense of this just pathological loneliness. Because as adults forming bonds, whether it's professional or social or romantic, then that can be really challenging and tough. And then, you know, we're often seen as too submissive or too controlling or too detached. So to to cope with these deep-seated feelings, then I think I mentioned this earlier, some turn to substance abuse or other types of behaviors, reckless driving or unsafe practices or adrenaline junkies. And it becomes this way of numbing the pain or coping with just a world that always just feels like something's off. So by learning about your own family dynamic or patterns, you're starting to uncover these hidden scripts or these expectations. And then you get to challenge them. And then you get to choose your path. And that's how we start to break free and we start to live the lives that really are our own. So today we really are going to spend time talking about these roles that we played in the narcissistic family systems. And I I really believe that by understanding those dynamics, then we can take a step back. We can see the bigger picture of our upbringing. And again, our parents knew what they knew and those lasting effects, because it is really about recognizing where we come from. So then we can, oh, cliche coming. So we can better understand where we're going. But let's start by talking about a woman named Denise. Denise grew up in a high demand religion. She was the oldest of six kids. And her father is a man who was well respected in his faith community for his, uh, his various roles, his callings. But he was a different person at home. We had identified that Denise's father was extremely emotionally immature or had definite narcissistic traits and tendencies. But his mood swings made it feel like she was just walking through a minefield everywhere that she went in the home. And for the most part, all of her siblings felt like they were trying to manage their dad's emotions. Now, there's a researcher, a pioneer in, in basically understanding dysfunctional family roles named Sharon Wegscheider-Cruz. And she did a lot of work around highlighting how members of a family adapt to the stress and chaos and chaos caused by issues like addiction. And then her model identified roles like the enabler, the hero, the scapegoat, the lost child, and the mascot. But here's where it gets really interesting. Then there were some other researchers that came along later. I think one named Kazar, Boyd. These were around the early 90s. And then they expanded this model. And then they showed that these roles aren't just limited to families battling addiction, but they're found in, in various dysfunctional dynamics, including families with narcissistic elements. And also those that are deeply entrenched in high-demand religions or those where there has been sexual abuse. But back to Denise and her family, her mom was the pathologically kind. She was, in essence, like the enabler, always moving around, trying to keep everybody happy, especially her husband. And then Denise, she was thrust into that role of the hero. As the eldest, she felt the weight of being the perfect child. This was the bridge between her dad's expectations and then her family's well-being. She felt like it was all on her because she saw how emotionally overwhelmed her mom was. But what does that mean for somebody like Denise? Growing up in an environment like this, where at church her father was one person, and then at home a completely different person, and where her mother's kindness was basically a shield that was used to deflect her dad's emotional volatility, it turns into a story of survival. Denise learned to excel, she learned to be the buffer, the responsible one, but all the while she was navigating this tightrope of her dad's narcissistic tendencies and emotional immaturity, as well as the demands that were put on their family by their religious community. So if you have ever felt like you are playing a role that's scripted by somebody else's needs and expectations, especially in a family where appearances matter far more than reality, then I think you're going to find something in today's episode. So, I'm going to spend a little bit more time with Denise's journey. I guess that will be our muse for today, the challenges that she faced and more importantly though, the the path that she's been on of rediscovering her own identity outside of what we can call these imposed roles. These seem like they were just put upon her. So, stick around and we're going to unfold Denise's story and I would imagine you're going to find some bits of your own story in here as well. So, if we're trying to figure out what role you are, figuring out who is playing what part in a dysfunctional family, is like a, It's like a, putting a puzzle together. But the crazy part is that the pieces keep changing places. Because it isn't just about who is who, but it's also about when they are who. Because sometimes you can even change your role in a family. You know, maybe somebody steps away from their usual role due to their own life changes, or somebody finally goes and does their own personal growth. And when that happens, then it is like musical chairs and everybody might have to shuffle around to fill the gap. And then here's another twist. Not every family has enough members for each role to be a solo gig. So you really will find one person juggling multiple roles, but never at the same time. It's like you're wearing different hats one after another, but never two at once. And this starts to be really stressful because it's really tough to guess which hat the family expects you to wear at any given moment. Let's start with the enabler or sometimes known as the caretaker. You can think of the enabler as the family's unsung hero, or if we're sticking with this acting motif, maybe they are like the backstage manager who they are always fixing the set, but they never get to come out and, and actually act or take a bow. And this role is so often taken on by a child, especially if the other parent isn't stepping in to support the family member that's causing the dysfunction, like the addict or the person who's incredibly emotionally mm-hmm. immature, So in this scenario, it's going to be Denise. That enabler ends up being the glue who tries to hold everything together. And they're the ones that are going to pick up the slack. They're going to handle problems that aren't really theirs to fix. It's like they're in this constant cycle of rescue missions and putting out fires. And this person does become, they're kind of like a martyr in the family drama because they're not just enabling the problematic behavior of the family member with the addiction or the mental health issue, but then they're also reinforcing the role that everybody else is playing in this script. And in families where a parent can't function properly, maybe because of their own mental health issues or addiction or physical disability, then you will find a a child stepping into this role and then acting like a stand-in parent. And they become the ones that are worrying and listening and trying to keep everything afloat. But then their whole identity gets wrapped up in what they can do for others. Here's one of these origin stories of the human doing instead of the human being. Here's the real kicker about the enabler They're protecting the family member is actually then causing the problems. But again, I am not assigning blame. We're just pointing out roles because that's what's been so fascinating about this research is that the people just fall into the family dynamic because of the emotionally immature or the addict. That person is the one that's driving the need for the whole family system to fall into these different roles. So again, that enabler, they're protecting the family member that's causing the problems, shielding them from the fallout of their actions. And it's a survival mechanism that it's like they really have to show up or believe that without that intervention, the whole family would fall apart. But then here's the paradox that by stopping the dysfunctional family member from hitting rock bottom, then they might also be stopping them from having that crucial, painful moment of truth that in essence could turn everything around. And remember, this isn't just about kids stepping into the role. Parents can be these enablers too. And then that whole dynamic plays out pretty much the same way. But if you listen to previous episodes, that's what the research shows is that enabler is is keeping that dynamic going. But then I personally feel like it's also saying that, hey, if if they could step out of that enabler role, then maybe we could give that emotionally immature, narcissistic person that aha moment that's going to change them. And I really believe that that's not what is going to cause that aha moment or the epiphany that that has to come from that emotionally immature or narcissistic person. So whether it is the kid or the parent, but my point is, I just want to start bringing awareness to these different roles because I go back to the, the belief that once we know what we didn't know, then we can start to be aware and maybe even start to do, and this does become a, a you thing in a good way, that if you are one who finds yourself in any of these roles in the family system, that with that awareness, you can start to change the dynamic in the family relationship by taking action for yourself. And so then when we go back and we talk about that enabler, especially in the context of a child in a dysfunctional family, the term that often comes up is parentification. And this is like thrusting the script for an adult role into the hands of a child who's barely had the chance to learn their lines from being a kid. So from an early age, the child who becomes the enabler is pushed into grown-up responsibilities. And they might have to take care of their siblings, manage household duties, provide emotional support to a parent, and it's a really heavy load. And it's they're basically carrying around a backpack full of adult-sized problems, even though they are wearing kid-sized shoes. And that premature leap into adult roles often leads that enabler feeling like they've been robbed of their childhood. And I I mean, I, I had a story once of somebody that said that they would take all their siblings to the playground and they would watch as every other kid is on the swings or the slides, which is where they should have been. But they're over on the bench worrying about grown up stuff and trying to keep track of their young siblings. That's that enabler as a child. They miss out on the whole carefree exploration or the lightness of just being a kid because they're too busy being a stand in parent. So now let's talk about the concept of an old soul in psychology. It's not necessarily a formal term, but it's a poetic way of describing somebody who seems wise beyond their years. And I remember early on thinking, what a What an amazing person you know this young teenager is who seems like they're an old soul, because it, it's like they've got this depth of understanding and, and deep emotional insight that you typically expect from somebody much older. Why? Well, because when somebody refers to this enabler as an old soul, they're often recognizing this wisdom that comes from facing adult responsibilities and emotional burdens at a very young age. So then it's all those experiences of etched a maturity into their character. And then why is the enabler often described this way? And again, it's because they've seen and dealt with all kinds of things that are so far beyond their um, their age, beyond what's typical for their age. So they've had to navigate these complex emotions. They've had to make tough decisions. They carry burdens that have given them a perspective on life. that's It's unusually deep and thoughtful for their years. So that compliment, if you have ever been given that or you give that to somebody else, kind of bittersweet, because on one hand, it acknowledges, man, you are amazing and resilient and you must have all kinds of wisdom. On the other hand, it's saying, hey, but uh, kind of missed out on your childhood, that, that simplicity and freedom that you had to sacrifice along the way. So next up is the hero in a dysfunctional family. This would then be the lead actor in the play where the script is all about them and keeping up appearances. The hero is, is about making sure that the family appears normal and problem-free. We're good, right, guys? They're the ones who start to excel, the overachievers. They're the ones who look like they've got everything together. But it's mostly a show for the outside world. So the hero is, is the one that the parents point to and say, see, we're, we're fine. We're good parents. It's like they're carrying the family's banner in a parade, making sure it always flies high, looks great. Their life mission? To embody the family's definition of success. They have to be the strong one, the unflappable one, the achiever. But this role, as shiny as it might seem on the surface... That also has its own set of heavy chains because the hero often struggles with things like stress-related illness and they can become a workaholic. It's it's the pressure of always needing to be the best, this beacon of success and normalcy. So from a very young age, that hero learns to take on all the emotional burdens, sometimes even becoming a sort of stand-in partner or confidant for the parent. So here we are again, back to that parentification, because when the parent or parents are showing up emotionally immature then they are going to start putting things on the kids. It is up to the kids to fill in the blank, to show that we are doing okay, or to take care of all of their siblings as well. In a family where there is narcissistic personality disorder or extreme emotional immaturity, the hero often gets cast as the golden child. That's the kid who the narcissistic parent showers with all the positive attention, but the golden status, it really isn't as glorious as it sounds. I have worked with plenty of people that have been that golden child because they start to suffer from you know, emotional, sometimes covert abuse by the narcissistic parent. And then they're also often, this is one of the, the saddest things, caught in the, the crossfire of witnessing and sometimes even being a part of or participating in, to, to their dismay, the abuse of the siblings. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? And experts believe that by seeing your siblings being emotionally or physically abused can be just as traumatic as experiencing it yourself. So while the hero might look like the star of the show, behind the scenes, they are often, they're, they're grappling with a lot of pain and pressure because they feel all of a sudden like they're carrying the weight of being the perfect image of a family that is far from perfect. And that's what starts to get crazy is when you start to look at all the different roles, when they are trying to manage the family's affairs or manage the parents' emotions, they're all going through it and they're all feeling like they are alone because it's as if they're all isolated in their own individual roles. I've talked a little bit about this type of therapy called internal family systems or IFS. And I do want to just take a real quick side note, because I think it's really interesting. The hero, if you're looking at the world of internal family systems, when you're talking about the hero or the golden child in a dysfunctional family, it's I think it's fascinating to see how it impacts their internal emotional world. So if you look at this internal family systems model or lens, in internal family systems, the psyche is viewed as made up of a lot of different parts. And each of the parts has its own unique perspective and feelings. So for the hero, constantly striving for perfection, carrying the family's image, a critical part of their emotional experience then gets pushed aside. So the part that feels not good enough or fears failure, it's sort of like then they have the, they call it an exiled part of themselves, a part that holds the trauma, the fear, the pain of never meeting those what are really impossible standards this exile part it can carry just really deep seated feelings of inadequacy and vulnerability so in everyday life the hero the the more dominant manager parts of their psyche work overtime to keep this vulnerable exile part hidden so the manager is going to do everything it can to drive this person to achieve more and be more and don't show weakness but then this relentless pursuit of of perfection and strength it leads to a lot of internal stress and a lot of conflict. Imagine a a tug-of-war, like an internal tug-of-war where one part is constantly pushing for perfection and achievement and the other part is buried deep inside. It's holding on to feelings of never being enough. And so then that internal struggle, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Anxiety, depression, burnout, and eventually physical illness as well as that exiled emotion and the trauma they demand to at some point Be acknowledged and to be healed. And let me take a moment and kind of shift the focus to a role that I think is often misunderstood too in dysfunctional families. That's the scapegoat. So now if you picture somebody who's always seen as the problem child or the troublemaker, this person, in the family, this family member often comes across as defiant or hostile or perpetually angry, but there is so much more to the scapegoat than I think meets the eye. I think the scapegoat is really this unsung hero. So the scapegoat is like the family's alarm system. It, they will vocalize, they'll act out the issues that the family's trying hard to sweep under the rug. So the scapegoat's behavior, even though it can draw a lot of negative attention, it almost serves as a bit of a smoke screen, smoke screen diverting people's eyes away from the real problems that are, that are brewing beneath the family's surface. Because in school, for example, the scapegoat is the kid who's always in trouble, not because they enjoy it, but because negative attention is still attention. They're often smart. They can be charismatic. They can have a strong influence in their peer groups. But the catch is that the groups they gravitate toward are usually not the most emotionally healthy. And so then their relationships tend to be on the surface level and they start to lack real depth or authenticity. And that role, the scapegoat and the family, almost seems like it's sacrificial because they become the identified patient, in a sense, They're the one that everybody points to as the source of all the problems. But then here's the thing. The scapegoats come in a lot of different forms, a lot of different sizes and shapes. You might find the quiet, picked-on kid who seems weak or sickly, or you might find the angry, rebellious one always in the thick of conflict, often viewed as self-destructive or cynical or even really mean. And in a family where there is narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic traits and tendencies or extreme emotional immaturity, when that's present, then the scapegoat is it's essentially the opposite of the golden child because then the scapegoat is the recipient of all the negative projections. Nothing they do ever seems right to the narcissistic parent. So while they might be labeled as rebels, it's really worth taking a look at or questioning whether they really chose this role or if it was more of a response to their environment. So the scapegoat in a, in a narcissistic family typically will endure both emotional and, and sometimes physical abuse, which in, makes their role all the more challenging and painful. It's almost like they can't get out of that role So while the scapegoat might seem like they are just a troublemaker, that behavior is really a deeper cry for help. And then it again acts like this mirror for the family's hidden struggles. And I have some absolutely unfounded, unscientific, just anecdotal thoughts or views around that I find often the scapegoat child or that, that enabler child, that those are the ones, the ones that just truly weren't seen. They weren't seen. They weren't understood are the ones that I think can often then find themselves getting help, going to therapy, even if they find themselves in in unhealthy relationships because that's all that they knew. But then those are the people that I think sometimes can eventually recognize or find their voice. They go get help. And then that's a lot of the population that I think that I'm working with. Let's talk about the lost child, because this is another one of those that I don't think we give we pay much attention to. Mine's just ironic because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Not not paying attention to the lost child. So let's turn our attention to the lost child. Because that is the one who often flies under the radar in a dysfunctional family. You might know them as the quiet one or the dreamer. The lost child is is kind of like a shadow in the family. They're barely seen. They're barely heard. They they play small. They stay out of the way, almost blending into the background. And their strategy for coping with the family chaos is just to disappear. You know, you find them spending a lot of time alone. They're, you often hear lost in their own world. And in a way, the lost child serves a purpose that's pretty similar to the hero because their ability to stay out of trouble... Let's the family paint a picture of normalcy. Well, look at, look at this person. They are so good. They're so quiet. So things can't be that bad, right guys? But by avoiding interaction, fading into the background, then the lost child misses out on a lot. And they often grow up as more introverted or loners or extremely shy. And they, their retreat into solitude means that they don't really even get the chance to develop a lot of crucial social and communication skills. And as a result, Then the lost child often struggles with forming relationships or dealing with intimacy and they may have really poor communication skills because their way of dealing with feelings they I'll deny them, stay unbothered, play the long game and withdraw from reality. So then in a family with narcissistic personality disorder, emotional immaturity, the lost child is the one who starts to seem like they barely exist in the narcissist world and they avoid conflict by keeping such a low profile that they're almost invisible not seen as a threat or, or even a valuable source of narcissistic supply, which I think that's one of the keys. So the lost child often suffers from neglect and emotional abuse, but then that just seems to cement their isolation and their invisibility. So while they might seem like they're just shy or introverted, the lost child's behavior is a survival mechanism. And, and again, you can see how these we start to find ourselves in all these different roles in this narcissistic family system as a way to survive. But it does come to the lost child at a real significant personal cost. Then I'd say that most immediate and apparent cost is their struggle to speak up and advocate for their own needs. And then having spent so much of their time fading into the background, the lost child often doesn't learn how to assert themselves in relationships. So whether they're friendships or romantic partnerships, they're so used to being unseen and unheard that they instinctively just play small, avoiding the spotlight and suppressing their desires and their needs. And that that tendency can lead to relationships where their needs are consistently overlooked or unmet. And it just perpetuates that cycle of feeling undervalued and invisible. And I think it's really interesting. So when I work with a client like this, playing the role of the lost child, you're navigating a whole different set of challenges. So when they come to your office, a lot of times they often are taking their first steps towards self-discovery and personal growth. But it's really fascinating because exploring what they like, their dreams, their desires is still alien to them. So for the lost child, this fundamental question of, well, what do you like? Or what are your dreams? It can feel really daunting. And it's not just they're not used to being asked about their preferences or aspirations, but it's they've lived a life where their opinions and their desires were typically deemed uh, irrelevant. Or they might have grown up in an environment where it expressing their individuality was met with absolute disapproval, correction, or even dismissal. So as a result, then they're probably going to struggle to articulate their thoughts. If you have found yourself unsure of what to say, it can be because you probably even doubt the validity of your own opinions. And then it's going to be, it might be difficult to engage in self-exploration and they, they probably hesitate to share their thoughts either because they're so used to having them overridden or because they, honest to goodness, haven't had the opportunity to form those thoughts in the first place. So it's this just deep disconnection from their inner self almost like this void where that's where their personal identity would be and then that does really again from the role of a therapist it's a it's a challenge because the standard approaches to self discovery and expression might not really be that effective at first so you have to build trust you create this safe space that becomes really important because then you have to gently guide them into exploring their own identity and their preferences and their dreams while still trying to reinforce the idea that their thoughts and feelings are not only valued are not only valid but they're are absolutely valued. So I found that some of the things that have helped with the lost child are some creative approaches like uh, art therapy, journaling, guided imagery, that those kind of things might help with different means to help them express themselves. But the goal then is to help them realize that their voice matters and then to nurture their ability to explore and, and express their individuality. And I jumped down a few things too, that there. these are some of the other costs, I think, to the lost child. And spend a little bit of time there because I think a lot of the population also that I work with are, they have felt like they are this lost child. So then you can have difficulty forming deep connections. Since they don't practice a lot of social interaction and communication, they can find it challenging to form close, meaningful relationships. And that would lead to even struggling with intimacy because they just aren't used to opening up and sharing their inner world. It can lead to lower self-esteem and identity issues. Because if you are growing up without feeling seen or heard, you're going to have a pretty shaky sense of self. And then you may feel even unworthy of attention or even affection because they've just spent so much time blending into the background. And then emotional regulation challenges, which even though it seems like they may be just a bit more indifferent or flat, if you're avoiding conflict and suppressing emotions, then it becomes a pretty deeply ingrained habit. So then there are times where your body is screaming the score and trying to manage your emotions or coping with stress or anxiety or sadness, it can come out in a big kind of way and when you're not expecting it. And then that leads to a risk of depression and anxiety because that isolation, the, the emotional suppression, it increases the risk of a variety of mental health issues, but things like depression and anxiety, because it just will cause this source of distress because we're designed to deal with emotion in concert with another human. We want to be heard and underseen, underseen. We want to be heard and understood and seen And then the thing that breaks my heart is makes you more vulnerable to manipulation or neglect in relationships because given their tendency to stay in the background, the lost child may find themselves in relationships where they are easily overlooked or manipulated and they start to gravitate toward people who dominate the relationship. So that will repeat the whole pattern of neglect and invisibility that they saw in their family because that's comfortable for them. So here we go. let's, Let's shine a little spotlight here on the mascot. So picture the class clown. Uh, The life of the party, the one always ready to make a joke or do a silly stunt or, hey, everybody look at me and watch me juggle. The mascot's mission is to diffuse tension and lighten the mood, especially when the family atmosphere gets too heavy. So imagine a a tightrope walker trying to balance the family's emotional load with humor. That is the mascot. And what's crazy is that they actually feel pretty powerless in the family chaos so they use their antics as sort of an escape valve. They're the ones who try to make everybody laugh when arguments heat up or when things get too intense. It's kind of like they're the family's unofficial entertainer, brightening up the room with comedy or even if it's just a temporary fix. But their humor often serves a much deeper purpose, too, because it's a way for them to voice the, their unspoken emotions that are just swirling around in their head and in the family, whether it's anger or sadness, fear or frustration. But while that lightheartedness does bring a little bit of relief, kind of momentary relief, it's like putting a band-aid though on a really deep wound. It doesn't really heal the underlying issues. Now the rest of the family might rally around the, the class clown and they might even go to links to protect them. But beneath this seemingly carefree exterior, the mascot is anything but relaxed. They're usually on the go or they're anxious or they're down if things aren't constantly in motion. And this hyperactivity starts to spill over into their ability to concentrate and focus. Sometimes it can make school or work a challenge. That's why every now and again, you'll hear them also labeled as a slacker. But this is where it gets really complex because the mascot often struggles with forming genuine, deep connections. And then their relationships might feel more like projects because they tend to gravitate to others trying to save them or fix them. And that can even be in their their work. And so, that is often battling these feelings of low self-worth and guilt, which they want to try and counteract by being exceptionally nice. And then this people-pleasing behavior, it's a classic sign of codependency. So, while the mascot might seem like the happiest and the most carefree member of the family, their role is layered with a lot of challenges because they're not just the family comedian, they're also a mirror of the family's unspoken pains, and they use humor both as a shield and desperately trying to find a way to connect, even though that doesn't resonate or land within the family. Wrapping up today's episode, the proverbial, what do we learn today moment? Let's just take a second and reflect on the journey that we went through. We were looking at the complex roles of of dysfunctional families. And we took a look at the enabler, the hero, the scapegoat, the lost child, and my beloved mascot. And every one of these roles was shaped by the different challenges within that family dynamic, the negative family dynamic. But they tell a story of survival, of of adaptation, of resilience, of the human spirit, the things that movies are made of. So you got that enabler, the family's unseen backbone, and taking on burdens way too heavy for their shoulders, especially when they're really young. The hero, shining brightly on the surface, also known as the golden child. But they're masking deeper struggles within primarily themselves You got that scapegoat labeled as the troublemaker bearing the family's unspoken truths and uh, the lost child. That was one that I haven't spent a lot of time with, but there they are because they're hidden in plain sight, navigating this world of solitude and unfortunately unspoken dreams, but they can heal later on in life. And the mascot, the family's beacon of light and laughter, but meanwhile, veiling their own pain behind this, hopefully, if they're at least kind of funny, humorous facade, And, and I want to say this too, there's something that I've thought about a lot and I just want to go on a train of thought. It's, you know, when you hear those moments where you hear something or you say something and it really resonates with you. And in that moment, in an instant, I think that it really, we mean it, whatever we're saying, okay, man, that, that clicked. I want to do something different. And we feel this rush of motivation. It's like this deep desire to change and to be better and to do better. But here's the thing. Honestly, the real challenge or starts later. And maybe it's later today after you hear this episode. Maybe it's the next morning when you wake up because that's when the routine of our daily lives kicks back in. It's like our brains are on autopilot and they start following the same old patterns and paths they used to. So don't get me wrong. I really think that we genuinely all want to change, to grow, but our brains are stubborn and they're comfy in their habits and they like doing things the way that they've always been done. And I think so much of it is just done subconsciously. So that's why if you, if you really want to make a change, then you have to be pretty intentional about it. And it's not going to happen just because you want it to. So you may be hearing something today and you have this awareness and you've identified, okay, I need to do something. I got to take action. Maybe you're feeling that spark of inspiration from what you've heard on the podcast today. And that is great. But that's just a starting point. Now it's better than staying in the dark, but now comes your part. It's your chance to start reshaping those well-trodden, deeply rutted pathways in your brain. And how might you ask? It's by doing, by taking action and literally any action that aligns with like with what's been stirred up inside of you today. Doesn't even have to be a big leap, start small, write something down that struck a chord with you. Um, maybe it's even just starting to Google therapist near me or go on psychology today and look, uh, jot a reminder in your phone's notes app. You know, if you resonate with someone, then reach out to them. Um, send yourself a text message. Just. Maybe just do one thing, just do one thing a little differently, because it really is the small things that then gradually shift that internal landscape of your mind and what it feels like to be you. And man, remember, change does not have to wait for the perfect time, the time when you think that you'll have more resources or more stability or more freedom or more time. I'm so guilty of that one. It doesn't have to be when when things are just right, then I will. You have to do the things. Cliche warning, the perfect time is now, this very moment. You have the power to start thinking and acting and being someone new, starting literally like right now, write something down, text yourself, reach out to somebody. Let us not wait for someday. Someday can literally be today. It doesn't have to be Monday. It doesn't have to be the start of next month, even though this is literally going out on the last day of the month of January. So, okay, I'll give you one pass. You can start on February 1st. But a couple of takeaways that I did jot down, and, and it is that importance of self-recognition. So, whether you identify with one of these roles or recognize them in somebody that you know or you're or a parent in a family dynamic and you all recognize those roles, but also maybe you're in that relationship with someone emotionally immature and you can recognize, man, we're creating these roles. Um, understanding the dynamics is is crucial because it's about acknowledging the coping mechanisms we develop in response to our environment. And then how they shape the interactions that we have with others, our views of ourselves. So it is okay to just start by reflecting on your own family dynamic. Do any of these roles, are, are where do you fit in? What do you resonate with the most? And then just even to journal your thoughts, that can be a real powerful tool for self-discovery. It helps to write things down and get them out of just the kind of the crazy making that can happen in our own minds. And then if you see these patterns in your own life, give it a thought, reach out to a therapist. Uh, therapy can provide a real safe place to unpack these roles and then explore the impact they have on your own life. And and then one more takeaway, the journey toward healing and change. Because again, recognizing the roles is just the first step. It really involves redefining our own identity and our relationships beyond these roles. And know that most likely if you're in an unhealthy relationship or emotionally immature relationship, as you start to change, there will be pushback. But I like to say that means you're doing it right. So just remember that it doesn't happen overnight. It really doesn't. Change doesn't happen overnight. Be patient, compassionate with yourself throughout this process. Seek support groups, communities where you can share your experiences, learn from others who have walked in similar paths. There is some safety and comfort in numbers, and there's almost nothing better initially than feeling heard and seen and validated and understood. And remember that the the roles that we play in our families are absolutely not the sum total of who we are. Because they're just, they're parts, the parts of the story. They're parts of who you are. They don't in- define the entire narrative or you as a complete human being. And there's such power in understanding those roles. But even more, I'm not going to lie, in transcending them. And as a recovering, emotionally immature, anxiously attached person, I was going to say also ADHD, but it's not something you recover from. You embrace and it's, it's awesome. Transcending these stories, they allow you to write your own new narrative on your own terms. And I cannot even stress how empowering that is. So thanks for joining me today on Waking Up to Narcissism. Until next time, I I hope you will continue to explore and be curious and question and, and most important, just keep on growing. We'll see you next week.